Welcome to the St Mark's podcast, where we discuss all aspects of bowel and colorectal disease. My name is Peter McDonald. I'm one of the surgeons at St Mark's. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, our handle is at St Mark's podcast. Now, for the first time, or international listeners joining us, St Mark's was founded in 1835 by Frederick Salmon and remains the UK's only specialist bowel hospital and is dedicated to all aspects of bowel pathology. Well, today I'm very lucky to be uh, sitting opposite Professor Sue, Sue Clark, who is a consultant and professor of colorectal surgery here at St Mark's, and until recently was the dean of the Academic Institute. Her main interest is, of course, inherited colorectal cancer syndromes, and she's also the director of the St Mark's Hospital Polyposis Registry. Thank you, Professor Clark, for being with us today. Uh, and we're going to start off, I think, with the inherited cancer colon cancer as a whole uh, and come back to uh, familial adenomatous polyposis for our second podcast uh, at a later date. So um, why is it that um, when some years ago when we were considering all this we thought by now we would have 70% of cancers uh, inherited and characterized when it's much much smaller than that? What would you say to that? Well I think um, we've really quite changed our understanding uh, of the relationship between inheritance uh, and cancer. Uh, it's uh, like all of these things, there's sort of been an ebb and flow. Um, you mentioned the polyposis registry. The polyposis registry was started in 1924 when uh, a surgeon and pathologist realised that there were people who developed colorectal cancer very young uh, and that they had a very strong family history uh, of the condition and that they had a lot of polyps. And they worked out that this was inherited. They worked out the dominant inheritance pattern of what turned out to be familial adenomatous polyposis and realised that, in a sense, you can inherit bowel cancer. A bit later on, um, a, a, a late, the first initial pathologist was Cuthbert Jukes. Uh, his successor, Basil Mawson, uh, described the adenoma carcinoma sequence, which we all uh, know and love, uh, and is uh, our understanding of how most bowel cancers develop from normal mucosa to small adenoma to big adenoma to cancer. And uh, he based some of his observations on those patients with FAP, and, and it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. If you've got a lot of polyps and you have them at a very young age, you're very likely to develop cancer. But nearly all bowel cancers develop from adenomatous polyps, and that has nothing to do with inheritance. And in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, people started to unpick the clockwork of, of what was happening in all cancers. Uh, and again, bowel cancer is easy to study because you can take the early lesions, you can take small adenomas, big adenomas, and you can take cancers and you can look at what's actually going on in them. And I think we now accept that all cancers really develop in a, in a sense, in a process that's like Darwinian evolution. What do you mean exactly by that? Uh, that sounds confusing to me. Um, so, uh, well, what I, I mean by that is when we're conceived uh, and as we grow and develop, all our cells are the same. They've all got the same genetic code. Now, obviously, that code is, is used in different ways, depending whether you're a 
gut stem cell or an osteoblast or whatever you're you're doing as a cell but fundamentally all cells genetically are identical uh, and the way they behave is modulated by expression of genes which can be switched on and off like conducting an orchestra but fundamentally they're all supposed to be the same and they all behave in the right way now we think cancers arise when cells accumulate mutations that stop them behaving in the right way so they don't stay where they belong they the hallmark of cancer is invasion they they move they go they go around in the bloodstream and in the lymphatics and settle in the wrong place and grow and harm us and that is what cancer is and that model is equally applicable to sporadic cancers, isn't it? It's, it's applicable. Which is still 95% of the ones we see. It's applicable to all cancers, not just colorectal. It's applicable to breast cancer, lung cancer, hematological cancers, all cancers. Um, and uh, the way this is thought to work is just like evolution. You start off with these identical cells that are normal. Um, one of them will uh, develop or acquire a mutation that gives it some kind of advantage over its neighbors. It grows, uh, it, perhaps it divides more quickly, or it uh, lives longer, or there is something about it that makes it a, a super cell, uh, and then it's selected for, and a clone of cells with that same mutation develops. And then a second mutation arise, uh, arises in that, uh, occurs in that uh, clone, which gives the cell with two mutations and even further advantage and so you go just like darwinian evolution right so that's how m the cancer develops let's now move on to uh, the lynch syndrome or hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer because uh, that's one of the big that's perhaps the biggest uh, subgroup okay. uh, and um, we both had the pleasure of meeting henry lynch i'm so sure and he's did a great deal of work on this but can you characterize that syndrome for the listeners yeah, well, um, when we're just thinking about how cancers can be inherited, if, if we think that all cancers arise by this evolutionary process, how can you inherit something that influences that? Well, in a number of ways, and Lynch syndrome is a prime example. If evolution depends on mutations occurring, which we know it does, uh, then it will happen much more quickly if you get more mutations. Now, we know that happens in nature. If you go to where Chernobyl was and there's a lot of radiation, you get accelerated evolution, effectively. A lot of mutations occur. Now, when our cells reproduce, the DNA actually is not very faithfully replicated. There are lots of spelling mistakes. Um, but we have some very powerful uh, tools in our cells to spot and correct spelling mistakes, a bit like spell check on your computer. Now, Lynch syndrome uh, occurs in people who've inherited a defect in a mismatch repair gene, a DNA mismatch repair gene. Uh, and basically that means that they are very vulnerable to DNA damage because they can't repair it. In fact, it's a dominantly inherited syndrome. So they inherit one normal and one abnormal copy of the particular mismatch repair gene. And that's fine, that one normal copy works no problem. So most of, most of their cells, most of their body is fine, but they're very vulnerable to loss of the one remaining normal copy. And that's what happens in the bowel particularly, also seems to happen in the endometrium and various other organs. 
but they in a bowel stem cell they lose that other copy and that stem cell loses the ability to repair the DNA and basically then every time it divides it accumulates a huge number of mutations and some of those mutations are very likely to be uh, ones that drive towards cancer or give an advantage and then off you go with accelerated evolution and bowel cancer. It's odd that we see Lynch syndrome affecting colorectal cancer so much more than the other tumours. We know that it affects endometrium, small bowel, ureter, renal pelvis and so on but am I, am I right in saying it affects the, those organs to a much lesser degree than it does the colon? Is it proportionally a small problem compared to the so colorectal? I th- I think that we've got a, a an issue about terminology, which may, has made all of this very confusing. Um, in fact, Lynch syndrome was first descri- uh, described in the in the uh, uh, late nineteen uh, in the late eighteen hundreds by a man called Warthin. It was then forgotten about, and that uh, and that original family was then rediscovered by Henry Lynch, um, and. It was described as Lynch syndrome. Then it was described as hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer. Then the the mismatch repair genes were discovered and we went back to calling a patient with a mismatch repair gene defect uh, a patient with Lynch syndrome. The the, uh, newer uh, thoughts about this are is actually we shouldn't call it Lynch syndrome at all because um, it's not a syndrome, it's an inherited tendency to get cancer. And actually, until you get cancer, you have no clinical manifestations at all, and you certainly don't have a syndrome. So I think we may be about to turn the change the terminology to mismatch repair mutation carriers. Uh, and uh, the other thing that we have discovered is that these things, have, it's much more common than was originally thought. We think that probably one in 300 people carry a mutation in a mismatch repair gene and as a result are at increased risk of cancer. In all parts of the body, not just... Well, it depends on the gene and on your gender. So we now have pretty well characterised four different genes and it seems that the pattern of cancer is really quite different. So uh, the MLH1 gene uh, is the one that carries probably the highest risk of bowel cancer, but it's probably lower... Uh, a lower level of risk than was previously thought. So if you look back at historical textbooks, they'll say 70% risk of bowel cancer. That's probably too high because of ascertainment bias. Probably MLH1 mutation gives you a 50% lifetime risk of bowel cancer. Uh, The uh, MSH2 gives you a lower risk of bowel cancer, but women probably about a 50% risk of endometrial cancer. Uh, PMS2 probably gives you virtually no increased risk in bowel cancer and a slight increased risk in endometrial cancer. So actually, it's probably rather naive to to give this condition a single name. And what's really important is which gene the patient has a mutation in and what their gender is and what their age is. So this is about genomic medicine providing much more personalised information about somebody's actual risk. So there's been this new classification consensus molecular subtypes of colorectal cancer. Is that a useful classification? I mean, you're sort of hinting towards it a bit there. In your... Yeah, so so that's a really interesting... Um, uh, that was, that's been some really interesting work that's come out over the last uh, three or four years, really looking at the biological behaviour of bowel cancers and uh, grouping them according to 
gene expression. And, and by doing that, you realise that there are undoubtedly a number of diff very, very different kinds of cancer. So we've been, again, naive, I think, in thinking of bowel cancer as one disease. And, and haematological oncologists are way ahead of the game. You know, it's been a long time since leukaemia has been all one disease, all lymphoma, all one disease. Uh, and actually, we're now recognising that bowel cancer differs. And We've discovered this uh, with this ebb and flow of studying inherited cancers and then realising that some of the sporadic cancers actually have very uh, many similarities and, and that it, ha in, it helping you understand the biology. So the commonest kind of colorectal cancer is um, the same as the cancer that arises in FAP. And actually, in, in that group, the way people have inherited their high risk of cancer is nothing to do with DNA repair or other mechanisms like that. What simply has happened is that uh, people with FAP have already taken the first step in the standard Vogelstein adenoma carcinoma sequence. The earliest change in most sporadic colorectal cancers is loss of the APC gene in the cells in the lining of the bowel. Now a patient with FAP has inherited a mutation in that gene in every cell in the body the day they were conceived. So basically, they've just taken that first step in the standard cancer Which pathway. Which makes them so much more likely to get it, Abs almost inevitable. Absolutely, but when they do lifetimes. get it, their biology of their disease is the same as the majority of sporadic colorectal cancers. So they have microsatellite stable, chromosome unstable cancer. And most drug trials, for example, of chemotherapy, have looked at cancers of that type simply because they're the most common. And it never occurred to people when original studies were done that perhaps they should be looking at the cancers in more detail and splitting them up. One of the other subtypes is the chromosome-stable microsatellite unstable and uh, Lynch syndrome, cancers arising due to mismatch repair gene mutation, par excellence, are, are in that group. And um, those those uh, cancers show the hallmarks of defective mismatch repair. So they're bristling with mutations, which probably makes them very immunogenic, which may explain partly why they have a, a good prognosis. Um, some pathologists, particularly Jeremy Jass, noted early on that he could actually see differences on, on H&E staining. Those cancers have lymphocytic infiltrate. Uh, they have a, a Crohn's-like reaction and they are immuno immunologically different from standard cancers, and they're very, they're very, um, uh, they're very uh, different because they have a lot of misspelt DNA. Just like in your computer, if your spell check is broken, your documents will be full of spelling mistakes. So the, the understanding of Lynch syndrome has led us to find these cancers, and then of course we found that about fifteen percent of sporadic cancers, which have nothing to do with Lynch syndrome are biologically very similar. And it turns out that that's because in those, the mismatch repair genes are switched off. They're intact, but switched off um, due to promoter methylation, MLH1 promoter methylation, um, which seems to occur in some elderly patients, but results in a cancer that looks very like a cancer from Lynch syndrome. So the, if these cancers are all slightly different, or many of them are, mm. and we've got all the beginning to see more and more of these subgroups coming up with differences, how useful is that going to be, or has it been, in the therapy that we're employing yet? Well, we're beginning to discover that it's very important. Um, 
the uh, Lynch syndrome cancers we know do not seem to respond as well as other cancers to 5-FU-based chemotherapy, or at least certainly to 5-FU alone. And that's probably due to the way that 5-FU works and triggers apoptosis. And that's been our base drug for about 40 yeah. years, hasn't it? Yeah. So so when you're looking at somebody that you know has, have Lynch, has Lynch syndrome, first of all, they have a better prognosis anyway. So if they have a, a node-negative tumour, it's very questionable whether they will actually benefit from chemotherapy or not. Different from the more standard cancers. Um, and when you do give them chemotherapy, you need to be careful what you give them and not give them 5-FU alone. So it's very important that the uh, oncologists know. But the same holds true uh, to an extent of other mismatch repair deficient tumours. So the 15% of sporadic cancer that are mismatch repair deficient. And it's very important that we identify those. We're now also knowing, uh, realising that these tumours, whether they're Lynch syndrome or sporadic, are actually uh, sensitive to uh, different kinds of therapy. Immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors is a new, uh, a new treatment which holds a great deal of promise. There are randomised trials ongoing at the moment, but it certainly looks as if these tumours should perhaps be treated differently. Uh, and again, it's very important that we identify them. So around the world, how many places or what proportion of patients with colorectal cancer of any kind are being given this sort of sp special treatment just um, uh, aimed at their particular tumour? I mean, we're not very far with this yet, are we? We're not. Um, around the world, it is, it's extremely variable. Um, there are certain... Uh, institutions in in North America and in Australasia where off their own bats some time ago they started partly as research and partly uh, to try and give people the best and most up-to-date results that, that they could have started actually assessing the tumours. So you can see whether a tumour is mismatch repair deficient using immunohistochemical techniques just staining for mismatch repair proteins. Uh, or you can actually look at the tumour DNA. And there are a number of places around the world that already started doing that. Uh, about two years ago, uh, NICE in the UK brought out a guideline that all colorectal cancers should be tested. Now, the, the thrust of that was to identify Lynch syndrome, and it was demonstrated it was cost-effective to do a test that costs about £60 to identify... Uh, or at least to set the ball rolling in identifying people with Lynch syndrome so that you could benefit them and their families and hopefully prevent cancer. But actually, I think the more important spin-off is that that allows you also to identify the cancers that are mismatch repair deficient and are sporadic and offer them more exactly the appropriate, um, the appropriate uh, treatment and the, well, the appropriate decision-making and then treatment if they need treatment. And that's a spin-off that uh, I don't think was recognised or certainly wasn't pushed when we started doing it, but I think it's possibly even of more benefit. What sort of proportion of patients in the UK, for example, are getting that test that NICE recommended? I mean, as far as I know, it's pretty small, isn't it? it, it well, it's rising. I, the last Freedom of Information requests. I think by Lynch Syndrome UK that I saw, it was in the region of 50%. But, uh, you know, I think it's rising pretty quickly. And I also think it's going to change. Because at the moment, we're using immunohistochemistry, um, which involves then more steps. Because if you find a, a, an abnormality, you have to then uh, work out whether it's sporadic or inherited. 
Um, I think in the not too distant future, it's going to become routine to get DNA out of all tumours and actually just go cut straight to the chase and look at the tumour DNA. What about growing tumours in chemotherapeutic agents in the lab for for a week or two and then selecting uh, chemotherapy that way? Is anybody doing it? That I think there method? are there are a few experimental labs doing it that right. way. It's a bit like it's a bit like mi- microbial resistance. Um, you know what your bi- uh, what your microbiology lab will do. Um, I, I, it may prove that it's very useful, but we already are finding genetic information about tumours you know if somebody has metastases you'll hear in the MDT the oncologist asking for the KRAS status that's a DNA test on a tumour we're now looking at the mismatch repair status I suspect that as we get more and more novel therapies we're going to be asking for more and more genes actually it's going to be quicker easier cheaper simply to look at the tumour genome Uh, and that, I think, is what's going to be happening in the future. Right. Now, Sue, you've made our heads spin, that's for sure. I thought you would. I'm going to bring you right back to basics and try and give our listeners something about the clinical side of Lynch syndrome, HNPCC, call it what you want, because you're a great expert on that. And most of our listeners, many will be clinicians, they're worried about how to identify them, uh, what it is exactly, how often they should be doing colonoscopy, etc., etc., in order to... To, not to miss yeah. when they should be treating in, 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 a, in a better way. So uh, can you give us some of your, something of your knowledge in that regard? So w- we know that about one in 300 people uh, has a inherited uh, defect in a mismatch repair gene. Now, how that manifests will depend very much on which gene is involved and that person's gender. We have, I think, grossly overestimated the risks in the past because we've picked up the worst cases with the strongest family history uh, and uh, that that then becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because if you only look at the worst cases you think it's all very bad and very high risk. So it's going to be very important to know which gene is involved. I think uh, that at some stage in the future we're going to have to develop some specialist MDTs where we get geneticists uh, and specialist clinicians working together to advise on an individual's uh, profile and what they need. But fundamentally, we're looking at risk of bowel cancer. And we know that the risk will vary from zero to 50% lifetime risk of colorectal cancer, depending on which gene is involved. So the highest is probably 50%. We know that um, colonoscopy, which should be high-quality colonoscopy, definitely prevents cancers and saves lives. It needs to be done at least every two years. We know that these cancers develop more quickly than the average bowel cancer, probably because of this high-speed mutation generation that's going on. So those colonoscopies need to be frequent, two-yearly. They need to be high-quality. They need to start at about the age of 25 or younger if... Other people in the family have had cancer younger. So this is after we've identified a family with two, uh, one or two early yeah. early colorectal cancers. Well, this is what you know when you have those... when you have somebody that you know has Lynch syndrome. Yeah. So they need to have colonoscopy regularly. We know also that their risk of colorectal cancer is probably about halved by taking aspirin. Um, 
Now that, uh, again, is something we're needing to refine at the moment. There's a trial ongoing at the moment, the CAP3 trial, to look at the dose of aspirin that's needed. It's possible it also reduces the risk of other cancers. It's also possible that the, the dose depends on your weight uh, and that we need to get the right dose for the right size person. But certainly aspirin is something that, we're going to, that we recommend for patients who have a mismatch repair gene defect. And at the moment, what's the front runner runner in terms of dose? Are we talking about very low dose aspirin or are we talking about very high dose aspirin? At the moment, we're putting people into a trial. But probably we're looking at only low dose aspirin if you weigh less than 70 kilos and then a higher dose if you if you weigh more than that, probably at least 300 milligrams if you weigh more than 80 kilograms. And you mentioned sex earlier about uh, bearing that in mind when we assess and think about these patients. Can you uh, clarify that? So, so the next commonest cancer after bowel cancer is uh, endometrial cancer uh, and then ovarian is not far behind really about a 10% risk of ovarian cancer now again we now know that we've possibly overestimated the risks and the risks are very much related to which gene is mutated um, but uh, the uh, endometrial cancers they tend to have a pretty good prognosis but at the same time many women who've seen number, members of their family develop endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer are quite keen when they've reached the end of their reproductive life to actually have a hysterectomy and ophrectomy, and it's certainly something we th should think about offering women who are having surgery for uh, colorectal cancer. At the same time, they may wish to have a prophylactic uh, ophrectomy and hysterectomy because we know screening doesn't help. There's no no evidence to support gynecological surveillance or screening of any kind. And I mean, am I right in thinking that Lynch syndrome as a, as a whole is the same in, uh, for male and females, or is there a d major difference? between the so colorectal men, cancer rate in this The colorectal condition. cancer rate is probably a bit lower in women than in men. Um, and in men, there may be an increased risk of prostate cancer. And there is, again, an ongoing study looking at pro enhanced prostatic screening for men. But it doesn't seem to be a particularly major risk. I think... Um, uh, you, you, know, you, you mentioned somebody with Lynch syndrome. Well, how are you going to diagnose somebody? Well, obviously, if, if a member of a family is identified then um, we, uh, we would offer uh, predictive genetic testing to their relatives so that you can, with a blood test in the space of a few weeks, know whether or not they have it. But, but this is a genetic diagnosis, and the family history criteria that we all, talk, all talked about historically are really pretty poor. So Amsterdam criteria... Still used or well, useful or not? They were originally a research tool. They were used in a study that was designed to try and identify the genes causing this, and, and they did the job for that. But they are not very helpful. So the Amsterdam criteria really just describe a, a dominantly inherited high penetrance syndrome. So you need to have three people. Um, one of them needs to be a first degree relative of the other two. There need to be at least two, two generations involved. And somebody has to be under the age of 50. Uh, the original criteria, it was just bowel cancer. The modified criteria included the other Lynch syndrome-related cancers. But actually, when you start doing the genetics, you discover that only half the families that we know actually genuinely have Lynch syndrome actually fulfill those criteria. 
And uh, if you look at the families that do fulfill those criteria, only half of them have Lynch syndrome. So while they can be useful in, in helping your ears prick up, if you see a family that fits those, you need to refer them to genetics. But it's not a diagnostic criterion and not meeting those doesn't mean you don't have this in the family. And if we've done those tests and they're positive for an individual in a family which seems to carry it, what are the th treatment options? Do we wait for a tumour to develop or do we do a prophylactic? So, uh, so I, I talked about colonoscopy, which is the, the, the most important thing in, patient, in, in patients with Lynch syndrome. There have been a historical look at um, uh, prophylactic surgery and there's a great deal of controversy about what operations should be done when these people get cancer. But I think a lot of the data that we're looking at uh, is very biased. It's very biased to the really bad cases. So if you look back at the literature, there's probably a 20 to 30% risk of metachronous cancer. So if you have a right hemicolectomy for your first cancer and you have Lynch syndrome, you've got a pretty high chance of getting another cancer. But when you actually look at the papers that, that, that those data come from, they are very old, they're very biased. Most of those patients have MLH1 mutations, which are the ones with the highest risk. None of them really characterise the, the colonoscopies that were done in the people who had segmental colectomy. And even then, they don't show uh, an increased risk of death in people who had segmental rather than extended colectomy. And of course, they were all done before the days of aspirin. So you're saying, in many ways, we probably over-treated with colectomy, particularly, or yes. uh, these yes. patients as a group. So we've got to be very careful before advocating yes. that. Which is why I think it's very important that we maybe move away from calling this Lynch syndrome, because I think it's a group of different conditions. And I think it's important to look at the individual. Which mutation do they have? If they've got MLH1 and they've got a cancer, yes, they probably do have a 20 to 30% 20 risk of getting a metachronous cancer. If they've got one of the other mutations, they probably have a much lower risk. Whatever their risk, you can halve it by giving them aspirin. Well, and you need to think about the, the, the um, effects of surgery. You know, if they are older, they may have a poor functional outcome if you do an extended yeah. colectomy. If they're younger, it may be more sensible. They've got a longer time to get their metachronous tumour. They may be able to tolerate an extended colectomy better. It's an individualised thing, and I think a broad brush, you know, this is the operation we do in Lynch syndrome is wrong, and we need to think about the individual. Well, on that note, Professor Sue Clark, you've um, covered the ground pretty thoroughly. Um, I, I think it sounds to me like the people in the labs are going to be even busier than they are now. The geneticists are going to take a leading role in these syndromes, and we've got to try and give them the patience and support them as you have done so well in the last few years in order for us to understand these conditions, which at first glance seemed simple, but now they seem to be getting more and more complicated year by year. So we're looking forward to your next podcast, but thank you very much for giving us the benefit of your knowledge today. Well, thank you for having me.